taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and in Ronan, Montana, uh, we're bringing you the truths that truly matter here on the Bellator Christie Podcast, and we want to open up with a passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 15, verse 13, which says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics will take into the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, hello, you, you, the listener. We just want to thank you. Thank you personally for engaging with us and being part of being part of the Bellator Christie Podcast. We just thank you. We want to I want to honor each and every one that uh, that has uh, tuned in to listen to these uh, these podcasts throughout the years and and uh, engaging uh, specifically on on questions and and things. Uh, it, it allows us to be able to one help minister to you and help uh, also maybe help minister to those that might have the questions that uh, that you may have. Uh, so so keep engaging with us and we just thank you for that. Uh, we just. Uh, we're here uh, finishing up, or, or I guess right in the middle, I guess of our uh, summer uh, interview series, and uh, we got some, we got some guests that have been coming on. And uh, uh, last week we we did a, a review of uh, of our uh, one of our other interviews, and uh, so I hope you took that in. We're able to uh, um, actually enjoy and uh, laugh a little bit at Brian and I. Uh, having fun with some ufo stuff so uh let's just welcome on brian hello brian hey curtis you haven't been abducted this past week have you well i don't know i don't remember <laughs> <laughs> kind of like paul i can't remember <laughs> well if they tried to abduct me uh, it wouldn't t- take them too long before they would uh, basically send me back where they found me <laughs> drop them let them out let them out <laughs> <laughs> Well, today we have the distinct honor and privilege of welcoming on welcoming on a great scholar and, and in my opinion, a great man of God. Uh, we have with us Dr. Leo Purser. Uh, he has uh, earned his Ph.D. from uh, Baylor University. Uh, he also uh, did studies at Western Kentucky University and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is the Associate Professor of Biblical Studies and the Director of the uh, Ph.D. Program in Theology and Apologetics. I have the distinct honor of calling him my chair of the dissertation, of my dissertation committee, and also a good friend. So we want to welcome on today Dr. Leo Purser. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. And I, as we said at the beginning or before the podcast began, we had you on before, but I promise that the sound quality will be ten times better this time than it was the last time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it ultimately doesn't matter to me. I just uh, spent a week doing his um, Microsoft Teams class with Dr. Gary Yates on oh, wow. the Old Testament and New Testament. And uh, there was a day when literally at 1030, Yates and I both disappeared off the screen. I don't know what the Internet was doing 
here in Virginia because we live not too far from each other. But we both disappeared, and the, I don't know what the students did <laughs> while we were gone. But hey, you know, internet being what it is, I'm just happy to be here, and hopefully, uh, people will get something beneficial from our conversation today. Well, all the fun, all the fun we were having with the UFOs. Maybe they thought that uh, one of you guys had been abducted by aliens with all the UFO talk. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, let's not get yay started on the UFO stuff. <laughs> so today, you know, you you taught me, you taught us in a class on the PhD program on uh, the theology of Paul, new perspective of Paul, uh, and in evangelical Christian mm-hmm. circles, this can be kind of a controversial topic uh, in some circles. So first and foremost, what is the new perspective of Paul? Well, that's kind of like asking, um, what is the evangelical viewpoint on Paul? Um, the new perspective is loosely uh, gathered around three guys. So let me talk about these three men for whom the new perspective is usually uh, uh, identified. First of all is E.P. Sanders. Sanders wrote uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism way back in the 70s. Uh, it's really not that much of a new perspective when you consider how long ago this started. Um, and in this book, he advocated for a different view of Paul than mainline Christian scholarship had been advocating. Uh, basically, we don't have time to go into details, but basically, he advocated for a Judaism that was not dramatically different from Paul's Christianity. Uh, we'll just leave it there. Uh, somewhere a few years after that, uh, James D.G. Dunn, as well as uh, uh, Tom Wright and T. Wright, both picked up the mantle on Paul. Wright says in a biography of himself, or it's kind of an autobiography statement he made uh, through Paul's issue in Galatians and Rome is trying to figure Paul out there since at least the 1980-something, and then encountered Sanders, then encountered Dunn. Basically, Dunn is the one who gives the name New Perspective to this. So let me see if I can give you a definition based on the fact that three different scholars— are identified as new perspective scholars, and they do not agree on every detail. The new perspective is essentially an attempt to understand Paul in a Jewish context. That is, instead of reading Paul through Luther, or reading Paul through Calvin, or reading Paul through Southern Baptist eyes even, uh, it's an attempt to read Paul in first century eyes as a Jew who's following Messiah. Now that's the simple definition. There's a there's a whole lot of tributaries and streams that flow off of that. So uh, there, there's a lot of differences among scholars on that. But basically, it was an attempt to locate Paul in a first century context. That is, to me, a very important aspect of biblical studies, trying to go back and understand what sure. the beliefs were in that time period. Um, Curtis, you have any additional questions? Yeah, and, and let me add when I, yeah, well, when Go I ahead. first came to when I first came to Liberty, I just wanted to say this. I had a student stop me in the hallway and say, you know, Doctor Persher, what do you think about the new perspective? And I kind of shrugged my shoulders because, quite frankly, I'd never heard it called mm-hmm. the new perspective. And so I said, well, tell me what you think it is, and I'll tell you what I think of it. And uh, when he began describing some of uh, what was then uh, uh, Dunn's writings, and I'd been reading Dunn most of my academic life. I said, well, that's not really a new perspective. That's what I was taught how to recall. Uh, Dr. Bill was my mentor at Western Kentucky University. It's a Pauline scholar of, uh, of uh, in my opinion, a high uh, degree of, of uh, excellence. 
Um, he was an FF Bruce fan. So I, I read Bruce, I read Dunn, I read all these guys. I never really thought of it as a new perspective. Um, taking Paul contextually was something that I've been trained to do. So, you know, when, when the student raised the question, I said, well, if that's what the new perspective is, then I don't have a problem with it. But if you're talking specific authors, then we got issues, right? I mean, uh, in evangelical circles, you have people as diverse as Scott McKnight, uh, Chad, Chad Thornhill, um, uh, even uh, Michael, who's read widely in evangelical circles and is considered evangelical by many of us. Um, these three men have written a lot on new perspective or, or even defended some new perspective ideas, and yet they don't completely agree with, say, N.T. Wright or uh, James Dunn. So my point is the new perspective is fluid. It's, it's hard to define as a specific movement, but it has had a critical impact on uh, Christian understanding of Paul. Okay, so just out of just just out of curiosity, I guess if we're talking about a new perspective, <laughs> what would be an old perspective? <laughs> but you know, I mean, if if you're, what you're saying is you've you've uh, you know that's what you were raised in or, or taught in, um, what would what would the other perspective be that would be um, so much different? Well, yeah, it's hard to because this is a huge conversation has been going on literally for several hundred years. It's just been called a new perspective. We have to go all the way back to the Reformation. Um, most of the reformers understood Paul as arguing against basic legalism. That is, the Jews were trying to earn their way into heaven. Paul found Messiah, realized he didn't have to earn his way into heaven, and that was teaching something different than the Jews had ever taught, and that's why Paul's in trouble. And so everywhere Paul's talking about works of the law, for example, in Galatians or in in Romans, he's talking primarily about legalism. Well, the problem with that approach is it's very negative towards Jewish law. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, uh, N.T. Wright, I heard him say this uh, uh, not too long ago in a conversation online. Um, he said that uh, when, um, when he used to read Paul before he began his in-depth study, he favored Calvin over Luther, but he began to realize that there were problems. Um, in Romans, Paul seems to deal with the law negatively. But in Galatians, he seems to deal with the law positively. And this created problems for, for right. How do we understand Paul's relationship to the law? So the main difference between an old perspective and a new one, the old perspective reads through the lens that the Jews were trying to earn their way into heaven. Bottom line. The new perspective recognizes that the Jewish concept of who God is and a covenantal relationship with God is not dramatically different than a Christian one, um, with the exception of Messiah. And so the idea of, of Judaism in general in the first century being works-oriented or legalistic is now, uh, I, I don't know that you'll find very many scholars that are going to argue that outside of some very strong uh, conservative evangelicals perhaps, uh, that legalism exists in the Bible is clear, but th is that the cause that Paul's championing against? Most uh, modern scholars would say not necessarily. Um, so the question became, so if Luther, Luther saw the law as a negative something, something that would cause the person to, um, what's the right word? I don't want to put words in Luther's mouth, and it's been so long since I read his Galatians commentary, but Luther had the idea that the law was there to scare a person to Jesus, to, to cause a person to be despairing about the ability to be saved. The law was there to cause us to come to Christ is the only remedy.
for our inability to keep the law. The problem with that viewpoint is Paul seems in some cases they have a pretty positive view of the law. So Paul never talks about the law in such terms. And that's so the old perspective basically still sees Judaism, perhaps even today, as a works oriented religion. You got to earn your way to heaven. You got to do righteous works. If you don't do righteous works, you're not going to get in. Whereas a new perspective recognizes that the covenant relationship in this and it's not speaking um, behavior. It's not, we're not, I can obey all commands of God. And the new perspective loves out as, as I do. And Brian might actually remember me as he took with me. Jesus gave a uh, hundred commandments. Look closely in the, and especially in the Greek, you'll see lots of imperatives, lots of commandments there. Paul talks about in Galatians, in fact, the law of Christ. So clearly, Paul doesn't have a problem with law in general or rules. Maybe it's we'll look at it that way. But he certainly has a problem with something that's going on in Judaism of his time. And see, for me, so that, that, that's that, go ahead, Chris. So I, I hope that's that well, see, yeah, Dr. Purser. If you were not to um, bring in a presupposition, so if you were not to bring in Calvin's. <laughs> Uh, writings and readings and, and stuff. If you were to bring in, not not bring in anything else, but just read the scripture, what would you see? Yeah, that's a great question. I grew up in a Southern Baptist home. So let me be first to admit that my background in reading Paul is through that evangelical lens of Southern Baptists. And I grew up reading Paul as, again, along a very similar line to Luther. The law was bad. The law was, by bad, I mean the law was something that was going to, that would cause you to fail. That's why the law even existed. Um, but now when I read Paul, if you're, you're asking for what I do today, now when I read Paul, I see the law. Uh, this always bothered me for various reasons. Let me back up a little bit. My testimony. Um, it always bothered me a little bit that my church seemed to look down on the Old Testament. That it was less than. Hmm. That it wasn't quite the same as the New Testament. Really? And part of that was because of the way we viewed the law. Right, um, the law couldn't. The laws could cause bangs, so the law could be good. Law is fired, right? When when Paul talks in Second Corinthians uh, three about you know every scripture is God breathed, inspired by God, he's mentioning there, he's including there the Old Testament. Certainly, the Old Testament is the primary scripture at the time. Paul saw the law as God inspired. So therefore, how can I say it's not good. I grew up in a church that used to talk about being uh, New Testament Christians, right? We're New Testament Christians. We're not under mm. law. We're in grace. Mm. As a grown up, I always took that mean law was your Until I realized that that means basically I first three core five books of the first three are meaningless in, in, in the faith I grew up in. Because mm. I'm not under law. I'm under grace. So now when I read Paul, him in the middle of a narrative about how God is redeeming people and the Jews are playing the center stage, they're the means by which God brings the law. They're the means by which God brings scripture, the prophets, the writings. They're the means by which Messiah right. is born into the world. Yeah. They're the means by which salvation comes. And so right. when I read Paul now, I see him as 
enlarging, if you will, I mean adding to, but in, in uh, expanding on this narrative of how God is redeeming the world. Absolutely, right. and that's, that's, that's kind of. Well, I, I hope that helps. Yeah, and, and yeah. when I took the class, um, that's one of the things that really stood out to me is is getting back to to trying to understand the scripture. And we've got we've got a question that we're gonna we're gonna further flesh this out about our own interpretations and how we lay, overlay those onto uh, our readings of scripture. But that's one of the things that really resonated with me is the fact that we need to go back and try to attempt to understand the scriptures according to what the author would have understood in the time rather than what we mm-hmm. may have well of course I mean, we've gone through like what two close to 2000 years of you know interpretation so that can have an impact on how we view things over time so anyhow can, can you do, yeah and i go ahead, again the thing well, the thing we have to remember is that there has been 2,000 years of human experience since the writing of our Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that the language is necessarily archaic, but it does mean that what I experienced in 2021 in Lynchburg, Virginia, is going to be different than Paul experienced in 58, right? That's just reality. Um so understanding Paul and his context is half the battle. And I, and I wanted to say this, even though I teach new perspective a lot in the sense of, of it comes up in my classes, I am not a, a, a card carrying member of the new perspective. There are lots of things uh, that Wright and Dunn say that I don't agree with, if I'm honest. There's lots of things uh, Sanders said in his book that I don't agree with. Um, but I, what I like about their perspective is their starting point. Their, if you will, program is to start Paul in his free context and try to make sense of his letters from that. Uh, so uh, Tom Holland, uh, Brian, you may remember reading Tom Holland in class, uh, takes a lot of issues with the uh, N.T. Wright's conclusions. I agree with Tom Holland on some of that, to be honest with you. I think uh, Wright has made some good conclusions, some that are very amenable to evangelical thinking, but at the same time, I don't think Wright's infallible. Uh, Wright doesn't think he's infallible either, right. for that matter. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to make sure we say that. So yeah, it's it's a so like I said, it's fluid. There there uh, you could tomorrow people may change their mind. So as as we d- dissect this new perspective or what's called the new perspective, can you distinguish the differences between covenant the covenantal nomism of the NPP? Maybe even define what that is, and what some people have called merit theology, according to or or the traditional viewpoint of uh, traditional being. Well, and, and we kind of went into this a little bit. Um, those who oppose the new perspective, right. what they may bring up against uh, first century Judaism. Well, covenantal gnomism is really Sanders' baby. And just say right off the bat that Wright and Dunn do not completely agree with Sanders on this issue. So, everything, you know, it's, it, that's why it's hard to talk about the new perspective as a specific thing. It's kind of like saying the Septuagint. Uh, there were lots of Greek translations of the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> the Septuagint is an academic tool we use as we study Greek translations. So uh, uh, I understood Sanders correctly, and I want, I want to make sure everybody understands I'm not an expert on Sanders. Covenantal gnomism is the idea that um, God starts with a call. He calls a people, and then those people are 
expected to live a certain way. So if you want to look at through, through evangelical lenses, salvation, justification, a relationship with God, whatever words you want to call it, starts with God's grace. God chooses and then is um, is evidenced in, in the lives of human beings by how they respond to God's commands. That's really not that foreign to most Southern Baptist doctrine I grew up with, yeah. that God saves me by his grace, but then my response to that grace involves activity on my part. The problem with, um, with Sanders, as I understand it, and again, I, I wanna make everybody clear that I'm not an expert on Sanders' viewpoint, is that Sanders later will argue that it's not actual obedience that matters, it's the intent of obedience that matters. Mm. And therein, of course, as you can imagine, lies some controversy. Um, were the Jews judged and the prophets would come speak to the Jews, were they being judged by God by what they intended or by what they did? Um, so even among the new perspective, covenantal gnomism is not always as widely accepted as you might think. But the basic tenets, if I understand it correctly, are God chooses, people obey. Now, where that comes into merit theology is clear, <laughs> right? Um, e.T. Sorry, um, N.T. Wright has said on occasion, it seems to me at least, I've heard him say things like this, I don't put words in the man's mouth, that we get in covenant with God by grace, we stay in covenant with God by works. Well, I can see how people would hear that and immediately think, oh, work salvation, you're meriting it, right? I'm not sure that's exactly what right means, the way we're interpreting that. I want to be careful not to throw him under the bus here, but I have heard him say something very similar to that. Justification and right with God starts on the God side, but today in our relationship requires effort on my side. That general definition, I don't think is going to be in Christian certain, well, maybe we'll spend very many in Christianity, because that's how we live our lives, right? Um, so merit theology, though, if I understood it correctly, is basically I'm earning my way with God. The more I do the right things, the better favor I get from God, and therefore God smiles on me, and I get to go spend eternity with him. I'm in a right relationship with him because I've obeyed. There is some of that, I think, in, in the Old Testament. There is some, even in the New Testament time, I don't use um, around that didn't have that idea. I think that's, that's human nature. Right? You, today, if you ask somebody, you know, if, if you were gonna, if you met God at the gates of heaven today, and He asked you why He should let you in, what would you tell Him? And you're gonna have people say, "Well, I lived a good life. You know, I tried to be nice to my neighbors, right. etc." Yeah. That's that's merit. That's mm -hmm. right. Works. Yeah. Um, earning, yeah. The Bible Bible doesn't speak negatively about those things, but it also doesn't speak in terms of covenantal justification or salvation or relationship with God about those things. So uh, you're putting me in a hard place here, but I'm really not an expert on gnomism, <laughs> but I think the thing is people see the second half of that as merit theology, but I don't think that's what they're trying to say. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good idea to put so your, chairman a, a, your, your a, dissertation yeah. chair in a, in a tough spot. <laughs> I still, I still haven't, I still haven't read that proposal yet either, Brian. So be careful. Yeah, that's, no, I'm that's just <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, do you have any extra questions on that part? No, that, uh, no, you know, earning, earning and meriting—that's all. That all makes sense. Yeah, 
that all makes sense to me. And when I took the class, that's what I kind of got gathered from it. I mean, I really didn't see, but you know, anyhow, um, talking about E.P. Sanders, uh, are there any additional beliefs and contributions? Not trying to put you on the spot here, <laughs> but uh, are there any additional right. contributions we need to add uh, concerning E.P. Sanders to the overall consensus of what's considered the I know this. It, that's a good question, and I don't know that I have a good answer. Sanders recently revised his original book that kind of kicked off the new perspective. I saw it uh, in in um, in print. I saw an ad for it. I, it's been years since I read his original All Palestinian Judaism. So uh, I'm sure he's doing new work. But the people I read the most, to be quite honest with you, include N.T. Wright and James Dunn, um, uh, you know, Michael Byrd, uh, Scott McKnight. Those are the guys that at least deal with the new perspective that I that I read the most. So, uh, in all honesty, I don't know with EPC. I'm sure he's doing some work, but I'm just not familiar enough to say. That's not that's not a problem. Uh, this kind of brings us to N.T. Wright. How has he advanced the idea of the overall new perspective movement? Yeah, I think Wright has become the poster child, if you will, for a new perspective, uh, maybe by default, because he writes so much, you know, um, and he's recognized as a person that identifies with some of these ideas. But uh, even N.T. Wright himself will tell you that he routinely disagrees with Dunn and routinely disagrees with Sanders. And back, in fact, uh, Dunn and uh, Wright were at a conference that I attended a few years ago, and both of them spent quite some time talking about where they disagreed with Sanders' original viewpoint. But uh, Wright also disagrees with uh, Dunn. Um, for Wright, Paul's writing seems to be pretty straightforward. The Jews have a problem, at least in Wright's mind, with uh, exclusivity. They think they're it, right? They're the elect. Nobody else gets it. Um, at least that's how Wright, uh, I'm exaggerating a bit here, but that's kind of how Wright reads Paul. The problem for the Jews is they think they're the only ones that are getting in. Paul, on the other hand, recognizes that this, um, this redeeming of humanity is a larger prospect than simply one group. It's, it's, it's the nations. Going all the way back to Abraham, you'll be a blessing to the nations. Um, the, so the emphasis Wright has to this is that writing is not just to add Gentiles to the group, but to recognize that God's plan all along, Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Samuel, Moses, David, etc., was to build a people based on a covenant who would be redeemed by Messiah's faithfulness and be brought to uh, establishing God's kingdom through them by Messiah's help. Uh, that's probably a great detail. Um, I don't think Wright would disagree with anyone said. So the, the problem with the Jews wasn't that they had bad ideas about God, but that they had bad ideas about themselves. They thought it, yeah. and no one else was going to get in. So when Jesus shows up and Gentiles start being included in the covenant, this is a problem for the Jews. At least that's how I read uh, Wright. So it almost seems like there's a problem with nationalism. So, so his contribution. So, so it seems like there was a, oh, yes, a nationalistic definitely. problem. In fact, than, if you keep up. Sorry. <laughs> no, 
No, you nailed it. Nationalistic problems. That's it. Uh, if you read any of Wright's political materials, um, you'll see he's not in a nationalist at all, uh, even in modern nationalism. Um, now, is that a presupposition Wright's back into the text? I mean, we can debate that, but I think he does he does understand the problem, the Jewish problem, if you will, not as a false religion, i.e. trying to earn their way into heaven, but they think that they've got an end with God. So it's almost an arrogance problem. They're, they're elect. And um, so nobody else is. It's, you know, that's, that's how I read it. Now, again, I may be misrepresenting right. And I really don't want to, uh, I like a lot of the things he says, so I don't want to throw him under the bus, but his, the implication is, the Jews have set up these boundaries that have essentially kept the Gentiles out. Messiah has come and said, uh, you're wrong. This is for everybody. And um, so Paul, as the apostle of the Gentiles, is now proclaiming this redemptive story of God is not just Jewish exclusive. It's, it's human. It's human redemption. And that's really not that shocking to most, uh, well, I hope it's not to most Christians, um, but it is uh, it, it it does fit in with our modern concepts and, and conversations about race and um, and nations and ethnicities and whatnot. Because for right, Paul is saying that too much pride in your nation, too much pride in your ethnic upbringing, can cause you to miss the point that this is a multi-ethnic something that God's doing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I think you see that with with Simon Peter. You know, Paul confronted Simon Peter on the issue of, uh, you know, he was eating with Gentiles, but then some of his comrades come in and then he, you know, neglects the Gentiles for his fellow Jewish compatriots. And, you know, Paul calls him out on that. Oh, yeah. Well, in fact, don't forget in the book of Acts, written by Paul's friend Luke, the first person that preaches to Gentiles is Peter, right? Mm-hmm. Cornelius' household. Um, and Peter's amazed that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit before he even finishes his sermon. I mean, it's like he says, let's baptize these folks. Clearly, they have the Holy Spirit. Um, and Peter had the vision of the sheet, you know, with the unclean things. Uh, so clearly, God, you know, given Luke's, Luke's history of the story here, clearly God was revealing to Peter that this was bigger than a Jewish something. Paul, on the other hand, um, is is a driving force for Gentile inclusion, right? We have Acts 15 and the Jewish Council, and and uh, what do we do with the Gentiles now that they're becoming you know followers of Messiah? Um, and so it makes sense that if Peter, how do I say this, backslid back to his mm-hmm. Jewish ways, you know, mm-hmm. Jews weren't supposed to eat with the Gentiles; it was unclean. Um, in fact, in Galatians, if I remember correctly, Paul even says he did it because of uh, kind of peer pressure from the other leaders. Mm. Um, you know, Peter was trying to impress somebody, perhaps, if you read that, read it that way. Um, and so Paul, uh, you know, chastised him. You shouldn't do that. By doing this, you're telling Gentiles they don't have access to God through Messiah. Mm. And for mm. Paul, that's the problem. If, if we're telling somebody, if we're setting up boundaries... To, to God, it, 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 Jesus is the the way to get into proper relation with God. And if we're setting up boundaries to getting to Jesus, we are part of the problem. That's that's mm-hmm. how N.T. Wright sees Paul. Wow. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I could. You know, it's funny, Dr. Purser, I, when you pointed that out, I, I kind of 
I could see exactly what you're saying by him by him actually claiming Christ and then going back to actually um, giving in to the we because we've, we've always preached or taught been taught it um, that that he was just going back to falling back into Judaism or falling back because of the pressure but we now when you pointed that out seeing it maybe in that perspective you're telling the new believers coming in that they need to uh, that 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 they can't have Christ without Judaism yeah in fact if you read Galatians closely it's almost a diatribe Paul is reacting very harshly to this preaching that's gone on in Galatia that Jesus plus circumcision is what you need mm -hmm. to get in with God. Jesus plus circumcision. And Paul even says in Galatians 5, if you're circumcised, Jesus is useless to you. Now, mm. there he's talking clearly to his Gentile audience, not to Jews. But later on, he says about these, um, we call them Judaizers. Paul never calls his opponents anything, but he's talked about these preaching this gospel, he says, that they go all the way and cut it off, hmm. emasculate themselves. And also implication there is twofold. They are in some ways cut off from God because they're insisting something plus Messiah. And kingdom is found by uh, only, no plus. And so hmm. that becomes, I think, the, the, the debate of the gospel in the first century is there something we have to add to Jesus? We still have those debates today, if we're honest, right? Mm, is, it, mm -hmm. uh, is it Jesus plus baptism? Jesus plus church attendance? Jesus plus tithing? Jesus plus reading your Bible? Um, Paul would say it's Jesus. And, and that's, the, you know, to have a right relationship with God is to find yourself in faithful relationship with Jesus, who is faithful to God. Mm. Well, that'll preach. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. Yeah. That'll preach and then some. <laughs> Get out the pipe organ. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, but but it's very culturally relevant when you think about it, right? Our our culture is so wrapped up right now in race issues. Yeah. Um, and I, I you know, and I, I know this isn't a, a cultural apologetics conversation tonight necessarily, but Paul is very relevant to this. Paul says to in, in Galatians that there is no Jew or Greek. In Christ, in Messiah, the implication there is not that race race uh, differences disappear, right? Clearly, that's not true. Um, right. I have uh, I have uh, German blood. I have Choctaw Indian blood. I have some Irish blood. Um, if you look closely, you can't see much Choctaw Indian blood in me, but you might see some German and Irish, right? Uh, if I look at my neighbor who has African American background, I'm going to see some African descent in that person. Uh, so Paul's not saying racial or ethnic differences are wiped out. He's saying the only thing that matters in relationship with God is where you stand in Messiah. Hmm. The rest of this is is irrelevant. Um, you know, in fact, he, Paul opens all kinds of doors there to, to conversations that a lot of evangelicals aren't comfortable having. Uh, he says there is no male or female in Messiah. Right? What does he mean by that? What is Paul saying here? The implication overall seems to me Paul saying God's creating a race of people, if you want to call it that, mm. who are followers of Messiah. Mm. And they're identified not by ethnicity, not by where they came from, but by who they're identified with, Jesus. 
Wow. <laughs> and I think for Paul, that's what the church is. I am envious of that uh, Native American hair you have, Dr. Purser. <laughs> yeah, well, I yeah, my grandfather gave me that, so God bless him. <laughs> Mine uh, gets thinner. One of my few thin- hidden talents is I can grow hair. So. <laughs> Uh, mine grows. Uh, mine does doing a disappearing act with every year I'm on planet Earth. <laughs> hey, watch it here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so several of my colleagues struggle there as well. And I, I yeah, I tell them I said, well, if, if the only claim to fame I have is I can grow a full head of hair, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of many talents. Listen. <laughs> oh well, thank you, Brian. You're kind. <laughs> So, uh, what are the main? But, so, I, I think this ahead, new sorry. perspective. Go ahead. Well, I was just I'm going sorry, to ask. Sorry, you go ahead. No, that's no problem. I was just going to ask. What are the main criticisms given against the NPP uh, for those who? I mean, you know, I, I've heard some individuals who are hardcore against any mention of the new perspective. Um, so, so, what would you? What, what have you seen as the main cri- criticisms after after your uh, previous response? Well, Tom Holland, I think, has, has done the most work in print that I can think of at the moment. Uh, he, he was He's educated in England, um, but um, his argument is that uh, with N.T. Wright more than anybody else, uh, his argument is that Wright relies too heavily sometimes on non-canonical literature as authoritative as opposed to the text or scripture as authoritative. And, and you know, depending on what you're reading of N.T. Wright, there's there's some truth to that. Wright likes the non-canonical Jewish literature, the literature of the second century, or the second temple Judaism, uh, which is an area I spent some time studying in. So I, I'll be honest, I, I, I kind of, it's easy to fall prey to the idea that, you know, um, the testament of Abraham says X, so therefore all Jews must have held to this, or the Dead Sea Scrolls indicate. Um, so there, that's one criticism. I think the biggest criticism is that there's no, um, there is no main doctrine of the new perspective. It's the, the, this very fluid nature is a criticism, in my opinion, because you got um, Wright wrote a book called Justification. Um, I read it many, many years ago, and I'll be real honest with you. I'm still not 100% sure I understand what Wright thinks justification is. Mm. Um, it's very, very ambiguous. Um, mm. There's also some issues with regards to um, eschatology, right? Um, the, the Wright clearly believes that there'll be a kingdom established. He clearly believes some kind of earthly kingdom will be established. It would be a messianic kingdom. But does he think we're establishing it and then Jesus just comes to rule over it? Or, does you know, Wright's mentioned the resurrection. So Wright clearly believes in a physical bodily resurrection. But again, there's there's just some, I guess, slipperiness. Dunn is probably the most um, um, specific in his uh, new perspective. And uh, for me, the biggest issue I have with Dunn is how he interprets works of law because he makes works of law primarily Jewish ethnic boundaries, things like circumcision or um, cleanliness laws or things like that, as, as opposed to, um, well, as opposed to other things. He, 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 I don't know, supposedly he bases this on some readings from um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. I, I have not read the scroll itself, so I, I'm not gonna disagree with him. But I, I think works of law is, well, I mean, I'll just put it out there since people are listening and I'll just 
bear my soul and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Um, the argument from many in the new perspective is that when you see the genitive construction for faith, the faithfulness of Jesus, faithfulness of Christ, that you take it as a subjective genitive. It's Jesus' faithfulness that saves us. It's Christ's faithfulness that saves us. We, we put our trust in his faithfulness to save us. But then we get to this genitive works of law, and we immediately translate it to something differently. I think works of law means something along the lines of works the law can accomplish. Laws, works. And Paul is very clear, I think, in his, in his letters, that the law was never intended to save anyone or bring anyone into proper relationship with God. Mm. That was never the intent of the law. Um, so me, Paul's contrasting the faithfulness of Messiah, the faithfulness of Jesus, and, and something of substance like that that humans can put their faith in towards a relationship with God versus this, this accomplishment that the law can provide for me, provided I have understood it properly and live up to it. Um, that's probably a little bit like the Lutheran conception of uh, legalism. I have to admit that. But and maybe that's my Baptist background coming out there a little bit. But I see works of law as Paul's way of saying the law was intended to point us to Jesus. Mm. In fact, in Romans 10, he explicitly says Jesus is right. the telos, the goal, the end of the law. What the law, the law was pointing to Jesus. He says uh -huh. that in Galatians as well. So for me, the law's benefit is to point us to Jesus. Luther was kind of right in that regards, um, but it's not to scare us to Jesus. It's an inspired document who's part of the narrative of how God's redeeming humanity through a messianic figure who's completely faithful to Yahweh and completely faithful to his followers. And that is what salvation is, right? Jesus' gospel, uh, the term that you believe in God and the one he sent, right? So the, the implication is pretty straightforward there. Jesus' faithfulness is what saves us and brings us into right relationship with, with God. The law, reading my Bible, will not save me. Mm. Mm. The, it's, the book can't do that, right? Um, so that's the difference. Does that help? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Correct me if I'm wrong here, guys. Now, I'll be honest, this is this is stuff I've thought through. I haven't come to final conclusions on it. It's just uh, odds and ends that I've thrown out periodically with students. But I can't help but think that Paul's issue is getting every everyone within the sound of his voice to a proper relationship with God through Messiah. In that sense, he's very evangelical. And in that sense, uh, N.T. Wright and James Dunn are both very evangelical because they would not disagree with what I just said. They would add different, maybe... Uh, I, different examples or different uh, details that I didn't add. I'm not going to deny that, but I don't think they disagree with Paul's mission being to see not just Gentiles, but people in general in proper relationship with God through Messiah. Amen. C Curtis, you have any extra questions? No, he, he pretty well covered it. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it to the wall. Sorry about that. <laughs> So, I, I want to jump to this question. You know, in, in your class, you because you are you are a scholar on Second Temple Judaism, and as you approach 
the New Testament, um, you, you have the ability of, of, of knowing the literature, knowing the background of Judaism of the time, the, the thought process going on in addition to the fact that you are an expert in greek as i have i, I say curtis i gotta say i watched dr purser in class have a greek new testament and read it as if he was reading an english translation my my jaw dropped to the floor <laughs> so but in class you mentioned the aspects of church community that are often missed and so i guess or even the whole aspect of community itself so the question must be asked, how does our Western Americanized view of Christianity sometimes cloud our interpretation of Scripture, yeah. and how can we overcome our cultural influence, if that's even possible? Well, the best illustration, I'll, I'll answer the second part first. The best illustration I can get is the American dream. Um, when I was a young man, back when Moses was still around, um, <laughs> There was an articulated American dream, right? You could ask almost anybody in America, what's the American dream? And they would have a similar answer. It might not be exactly the same. I don't mean that, but it'd be similar. Nowadays, you ask people what the American dream is, and it's all over the map. There is no Mm -hmm. single story that identifies the American dream. Mm. Part of that is because of our individualistic nature. This goes back to your first question. The West is very big on me. Mm. I'm the center of the story. Right. Um, And we're very, you know, pull up your own bootstraps, solve it yourself. You can do this, right? Um, And where that's beneficial in some things, I'm not going to deny that. It's also uh, detrimental in other things, right? It's why uh, um, masculinity in the West has often been defined without any emotion, because to be detached, yeah. Yeah. to be an individual doing it on your own is important. On the other hand, the biblical story, the Middle East during Second Temple Jewish period, which includes the New Testament period, they didn't identify themselves necessarily individualistically, at least not the way that we do. They identified themselves by family, by clan, by people group, if you will. Um, This is what got the Jews in trouble, right? At least uh, by the prophets, because they so identified themselves as the chosen people, they forgot that they were supposed to go out and bring other people to God. Um, And Hmm. so they saw those relationships, the community relationships, right? Um, so, I'm, you know, it's a tough question for me because every time I talk to 21st century Christians, especially my students, and the younger they get, the harder it is to explain this because a collectivistic mindset is usually identified as communism, right, in modern culture. But the problem with what I'm trying to say is not communism, it's identity with human beings. So the Purser family is who they are as a unit. Honor and shame, blessings and cursings, there are things that identify us as pursers that don't identify other family groups. That's a community. So in the, new, in the Old Testament, in fact, you'll, let me put it like this. You'll find very few places in Paul's letters, since we're talking about Paul, where he uses the word you in the Greek as a plural, as a singular. It's almost always plural. For Paul, you is all of you, or as we like to say here in Virginia, you all, 
right? Yo. Um, <laughs> or you and so if you're in West when Virginia. he says, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Where he says, work out your, your salvation through fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to willing to do for his good pleasure. All those yous are plural. You all work out your salvation, the community, because God works in you all. So it's not that this is why Yudia and Syntyche at the end of that letter of Philippians is a problem for Paul because they're not getting along. The community is being disrupted by their dispute. And that disruption is causing a weakening of the process of salvation, if you want to call it that, in the group. Now, put that in American context. There's three of us talking here. All three of us can recount stories of church splits. Mm -hmm. Right? Absolutely. And in many cases, they were acrimonious, horrible, still cause hard feelings. Right? Well, how's that how's that helping the the cause of Christ? How's that helping draw people to Messiah? Now, I'm not going to argue that every church split is necessarily evil, but I'm I think the problem is because we think so and we think consumer mindset, individualistic mindset that I say, well, I don't like this preacher anymore. I don't like this church anymore. I don't like this music anymore. I'm going to go find something that suits me as opposed to how can I work with this group of people towards salvation in Messiah Jesus? Mm, wow. Now, Brian, <laughs> the hard part of that question is how do I get other people to think that way? And I don't have a good answer, and especially in, in American culture today, um, where it's all about my rights. Um, my viewpoint, I, I, I saw somebody online not too long ago that said uh, they would not honor Joe Biden as president because he's not, uh, he, because of his ungodly ideology. And I try to remind this person that doesn't say honor the emperor if he agrees with you. Right. The Bible says honor the emperor because he's the emperor. And wasn't that written around the time where Emperor Nero was, was in office or in, as, as Roman yeah. emperor at the yeah. time? Yeah, actually, that was. Yeah, Peter and Paul both told us to uh, yeah. honor the emperor, submit to the authorities, and they both were martyred by Nero, the mm -hmm. same guy that was in office when they wrote that. Um, now, does that mean I have to agree with everything Biden says? No, not at all. Um, the president is not any more infallible than the rest of us. Right. And on the other hand, how well I, I don't know how to put this in words collectively if i think of myself and my salvation as the primary goal of the bible then i've moved from a um heliocentric a sun centric view of the universe to a earth centric wow view it's all about me mm. right mm -hmm. the planets re our planets of our solar system revolve around a sun it's not about them. It's about the sun. In our case, the S-O-N. It's about Jesus. Amen. That sun, if I understand the solar system, and Brian, you've been doing lots of cool stuff about the, the solar system <laughs> with your looking in the sky with your telescope and whatnot. That sun actually is in movement with other universes around other things, right? Um, it's not even about our universe in that sense. 
So a, a community mindset reminds me that there's more than me in this. Mm. And what I do, what I say, how I respond to God affect the community. An individualistic mindset is it's just me and Jesus, and that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things that absolutely so amazes that, me. Well, that's a battle. Well, one of the things that absolutely amazes me about astronomy is the fact that as you look out at this universe that God has created, and, and then you look back at our planet in, in lieu of the size of, of, of the immensity of this universe, it really has a way of advocating the, that, that community mindset that you, that you mentioned because we're really all on the same planet <laughs> together. You know, yeah. we're, we're part of a, an exactly. earthly community, uh, and this planet is very fragile. When you take a look at all the stuff that's out there, I mean, mm-hmm. it's absolutely amazing. Right. I, I remember seeing photos from the Apollo moon landings, photos of the Earth. And I remember as a kid, because I was in elementary school up to junior high when all those things took place. I remember as a kid seeing those pictures and thinking, wait, there's no state boundaries on the United States of America. <laughs> There's no boundaries between U.S. and Mexico. You know, you look at a, a globe or you look at a map and you see the boundaries. I have a world map on the wall in the room I'm in right now, right? It has all the boundaries. You don't see those when you're looking globally, right? Oh, man. Yes, they're mm. different people. I'm not denying that. But like you said, we share the same earth. Mm. Well, <laughs> Man, this this would make it even a sermon series. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of this one podcast so, alone. So, Brian, before we move on to the next question, Doctor Purser, when? If so, when did we become so individualized? I guess that's historically when did we do that? Because, and I, and I don't mean to throw a wrench in the whole deal, but but if we think about it, back even just a cent, just a just a. Uh, just one um, set of family members back in my family. I mean, we still, when we come to a, a family reunion, we take over the whole place because we're we're a family unit. Um, and, and so, out mm-hmm. west, out where we're at, we we still kind of think. Uh, a lot in a family unit. So when we move and breathe and kind of do things, we 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 go in and out of what is a common interaction with the with the community people know us as our last name and and so i guess Uh my question my question is is at what point did we move from that because you know even the settlers and the the people that that started moving into the into the country um coming from overseas um generation like i'm i'm uh, what third generation into into the United States, and so so we that's what we know us ourselves as because that's what we started as, and, and so I guess that's that's when did we start losing our connection, our family unit, so to speak? May that have been something that started this um, this kind of steering the boat in the wrong direction? I, that's a I honestly don't know. I mean, I think you can find some of the individualistic ideas even back as far as Greco-Roman concepts. 
Mm. I don't want to throw the Greeks and the Romans under the bus either because I'm not an expert on their literature. But certainly in an American environment, that's mm. what I grew up in, right? Um, family still, family units still mattered when I was a kid. They still matter, I think, today. We just don't emphasize it like we used to. Uh, mm. My dad mm. used to say, you know, pursers act a certain way. We're pursers. This is how we act. Um, right, right. Okay. We, so we know this. But then when we think of it beyond our family, we don't think of our next door neighbor as an American. Uh, I, it's, I don't know, Chris. I, I, Curtis, I'm not sure where that came from, if I'm honest. I, I, I look at that and I think, okay, somewhere along the line, we've moved from recognizing the family of humanity mm -hmm. as individuals. And maybe it has something to do with the issues of rights in American society. I, you know, mm -hmm. um, I, but again, I, I'd be hard pressed to say this is the problem. This, or let me rephrase that: I'd be hard pressed to say this is the root of the problem. Mm. That the problem exists, I think, is clear. Where it came from, maybe not so much. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I guess you could even argue to some degree it goes all the way back to Satan in some ways. It, you know, if right. we, yeah. we take the story of the fall of Satan as him wanting to be God and take over everything, that's very individualistic, right? Mm. Yeah, that's very true. Would you so, would you say that you know, I, 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 to answer your question? I don't know. I've noticed that um, many in the Greek Orthodox movement seem to emphasize more of community. I mean, that's not you know true, maybe necessarily of everyone in the movement, but just generally speaking. Do you think maybe the split between, you know, because obviously Protestants came from the Roman Catholic Church, you know, if you follow the history, um, because that's what they sure. were protesting, you know, if during, during the time of Reformation. Do you think it have it's maybe began, I mean, obviously I think you have a good historical point going back to Satan, but, but do you think it may have began where the split came between the Roman, um, the Holy Roman Empire as opposed to, the the Eastern Church during the the Great Schism or was it ten was it ten fifty nine something along that lines? Yeah, you may be onto something, Brian. I mean, if I'm thinking hypothetically, and let's make sure we catch that in those terms, because I don't want to blame my Catholic uh, friends and brothers and sisters for <laughs> right, right Western <laughs> problems. But the Catholic Church finds their authority in an individual, the Pope. Hmm. Uh -huh. Yeah. The you know, the Orthodox churches find their authority in the community. Hmm. So when the Protestants rebelled in the you know when Luther and company came along in the you know fourteen fifteen hundreds, they're rebelling against the Catholic Church per se, not the Orthodox Church. Now, now there may have been reforms there too. I'm I'm not a church historian. But yeah, maybe that's where maybe we got it from there. I don't know. I don't again. Don't want to blame the Catholics for it. But it is interesting when you think of it that way, that the the Catholics have this single pope, this individual, if you will, and uh, the the Orthodox Church has more of a, a council, a community, more of a family feel. Uh, and you're right. The Greek Orthodox Church is very much like that. I've I've attended several just to because I wanted to experience what it was like. And they made me feel like part of the family, even though I wasn't Greek Orthodox. Wow. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
there there is actually a monastery so, uh, not I far think, from from where I live, and that uh, actually one county over that is uh, run by the Greek Orthodox Church. And in fact, they will allow people to even who aren't Greek Orthodox to go and take a sabbatical there if they need to get away. Uh, now they have certain you know mm. rules and regulations you need to follow if you're not part of the Orthodox Church, but they still allow you into the community, the, their own community there. Right. Well, let me, let me put it like this. The, the first time I ever attended a Greek Orthodox church, um, I was teaching a, a class in Waco for a, a community college on, uh, on Christianity, the, kind of the philosophy of Christianity. And I told my students that I wanted them to go visit a church that was outside their faith tradition. So if they're Protestant, Catholic, uh, Orthodox, or something like that, if you're Catholic or Orthodox, you have a lot more choices because Protestants have hundreds of choices. Um, if you're an atheist, just pick one kind of thing, right? And so since I'd done that, and I'd attended several Catholic churches in my lifetime with friends. I thought, I'm going to try the Orthodox Church out. I'd become friends with the, the priest there, Father Ted. I got to know his family, his wife and his family. And so I told him I'm going to come. Well, at, when we got there on Sunday, my family and I, it was St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church in Waco, Texas. Um, a deacon greeted us at the door, uh, not, not your typical Baptist deacon, but a deacon <laughs> greeted us at the door. He was assigned the task of explaining church to us. Wow. And so he told us what was going on in the service before the one we went into. They were having a, a kind of a prayer time, I think. And he explained everything to us and what we could expect to see and hear. And then he said, at the end of our service, we always have the Eucharist. We always have communion. Uh, because you're not members of our church, you can't participate in the communion. But afterwards, Father Ted always gives out the leftover loaves to to people in the congregation. They're blessed, but they're not <laughs> not considered Eucharist anymore. And so I went up and talked to Ted, and he handed us some of the bread. It was kind of cool. But the guy, so um, he told us the story in such a way that I felt like not an outsider. I felt like I'd been invited into somebody's home and told the history of the family. Wow. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, they actually, ironically, had a meal afterwards. Felt really Baptist there. Donuts <laughs> and the whole nine yards. But you could tell there was a difference in how they responded to each other, right? Because they were family. You know, I had a similar experience because uh, I took a world religions class at a community college. And w that was one of the tasks that we had as well to visit a um religious group that's different from your own and uh, actually I, there was a synagogue down in the statesville community and very sweet people down there and i called and asked if it'd be okay if i attended and and just kind of had some questions to ask and there's a wonderful couple who uh, allowed me to come and they they i didn't realize that i was supposed to being a male supposed to wear the yarmulke but uh, they actually they they laughed it off they said that's no problem so when you come back just just wear it next time but they actually allow me to go up and see the Torah and see it in Hebrew, this massive scroll. Wow. And then afterwards, mm -hmm. they had the same thing like what you were talking about, a, a community meal, um, you know, and, and invited us to that. I mean, they, they made us feel like family. And um, it mm -hmm. was just a wonderful, wonderful yep. experience. Where do you think the early church got their agape meal ideas from? <laughs> Very right. true. You know, the first Christians were Jews. They met in a synagogue. Our services are very much like synagogue services. The difference is many evangelical churches today, we don't 
we don't act like family, mm, right? right? I mean, I don't know how to, I don't know how to say that. I don't mean to be casting aspersions on my brothers and sisters, but we don't, at least not to the level you and I are talking about here, yeah. right? Um, and the question was, how do we get that back? And I, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss. I'm not real sure. It's not just eating together. It's not just um, being kind to one another, which mm. both are good things. There's more to it. It's, it's actually identifying as part of this group of people. And um, both the Greek Orthodox and the Jews, the, the synagogue at least, they have that ethnic something that connects them. And in some cases, they have whole families that attend the same synagogue or the same church. And so, you know, going back to what Curtis said earlier, there's that family connection, literally, not just spiritually. Um, but, I, you know, that's a, I, I'll have to think about it. How can we foster that in our churches? Uh, Paul certainly thought that was important. He, as you noted earlier, challenged Peter on his lack of willingness to eat with um, Gentiles. Mm. Right. The, Last question for you. Um, as you. You're a scholar in Second Temple Judaism. How has your research in the area helped shape your the way you approach biblical interpretation? And has it even brought any maybe even surprises uh, or challenges to you by the way uh, maybe way you formally viewed Scripture? Well, I, the biggest surprises are things that I never saw before that now all of a sudden make sense. Um, my my mentor who went to be with the Lord many years ago, Bill Lane, was teaching a class on Paul. Uh, no, I take that back. He's teaching a class on Jesus on the, on the New Testament, the Gospels. And he had just taught us the Dead Sea Scrolls. And somebody raised the question, if the Essenes existed in the first century, how come we don't read about them in the Bible? And Bill said, oh, but you do. They're just not called Essenes. Mm. And he began to explain to us the story where Jesus is talking to the crowd. And he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, and then he goes on to say, you know, pray for those who misuse you, despitefully use you, uh, so on. And Bill said, you can search from Genesis to Malachi, and you're not going to find a passage that says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. He said, but if you look at Qumran, you'll find it. <laughs> wow. And, and that was eye-opening to me. I was like, wow, they're actually in the New Testament. He also believed that the opponents of Paul and Colossae may have been Essenes. Uh, that's a different story. But uh, that began to, I began to search Second Temple Jewish literature for more understanding of what might have been going on at that time. In, in fact, my uh, dissertation at Baylor dealt with, uh, because I was so uh enamored with this material, I dealt with the, the book of Revelation and was looking at how, uh, what streams of tradition from Jewish literature may have fed into mm -hmm. a specific, a Revelation chapter 12, specifically um, John's use of Michael and John's depiction of Messiah. Um, and it was quite mm -hmm. eye-opening to see things, Michael traditions, Melchizedek traditions, Metatron, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm saying things, names now that people are going, oh, I've never heard of that. They're in Second yeah. Temple Jewish literature, these angelic beings. And, well, that was eye-opening to see that there's a lot about angels that we assume in the New Testament that's really fleshed out in the non-canonical materials. And, and just for our listeners, don't, uh, don't uh, confuse Metatron with the Transformers Megatron. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, with an, 
But I, I usually say, or with an opponent of Godzilla. You know, Godzilla's <laughs> fighting Metatron. I don't know. Um, it's, I, it, but it's, so yeah, and answered your question, this has opened venues, windows, if you will, into the first, in, in the first century, into Jesus' time, that I was like, oh, well, now that makes more sense to me. Um, Bailey, I can't think of his first name now, wrote a little book, uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, in which oh, he yeah. breaks down several of the parables and stories from Jesus through the perspective of someone who lived in the Middle East. And I, I've read that book several times and walked away every time going, oh, now I understand that story better. Because I didn't have the context. I didn't have it well enough to understand it is the point. So I do think it's important. Here's the problem. How do I get that to, uh, you know, Joe Lehman in the, in the pew who's not going to take the time to get a copy, even an English copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls or Josephus or um, any of these other Jewish literature we talk about. I think that's where preaching and teaching takes precedence. Uh, I, I don't assume my congregation won't understand. I tell them things, and then if they have questions, I help them find the answers. I, sh I show them where to look. Um, to me, that's educating them the way uh, some of these scholars I had the privilege of studying under educated me, helping them find this information. It's out there, right? You know, right. Uh, but it does take a little bit time to search. Amen. Yeah. Curtis, you have any uh, concluding concluding questions? No, I think uh, I think he answered everything I was going to question. <laughs> well, well, before yeah. I turn it over to you, Curtis, I, I do want to say. Um, a happy birthday to one of our Bellator Christie family. That's Maddie Evelo, who turned 16, was it today? Yeah, 16, yep. So happy birthday, Maddie. Yep, yep. Well, That's thank good. you for taking time away from your daughter's birthday to hang out with us, Curtis. I appreciate that. <laughs> yep, yeah, we're going we're gonna to try to do something at least. It may not happen today, but we'll do something. So... Yeah. Well, Dr. Purser, we, we certainly thank you for, for coming on and, and, uh, you have a constant invite anytime you have something that you want to, uh, bring up or cover or some sort of topic that, uh, gets, gets brought up that you want to, uh, flesh out and talk about, um, you're more than welcome to come on. Um, certainly I've enjoyed it and, um, yeah, our brains are going to be a little fuller today. Uh, like we, like we say, we we want to stretch people's minds uh, to help them help them push them, and that's the the basis of this podcast. So. See, Curtis, now you know why I begged and pleaded and begged and pleaded for Doctor Purser to be my chair. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but well, yeah, we'll see how that works out, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it Dr. may Purser, it may take me a while. Text, you, you can just text me some questions about Brian if you want. Don't tempt me. That would not be. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to put him in a, at a disadvantage. Actually, uh, I will say, Brian. Uh, one of the beauties of being the PhD program director is getting to work with students like Brian and so many others. I'm, I'm, not, I'm picking on him because this is uh, kind of his thing. Uh, this podcast. But, uh, man, we got so many quality students in there that, uh, to be honest with you, I, I usually try to point people to other chairs because I'm so overwhelmed with everything else I do that I don't have as much time to devote to it. But uh, when Brian came to me with his, uh, his topic, I was kind of like, well, 
kind of have to say yes to this. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how else I, I could deal with this. Um, so I'm, 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 I am looking forward to it, but he, in, in his defense, he has chosen the slowest reading chair to be his chair. So um, I hope he's in no hurry to, to graduate. <laughs> <laughs> he's got time. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, he doesn't have much more hair to give up. So I that, that's right. <laughs> Follically <laughs> challenged. There you go. Well, we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value your time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith. We strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, So your own, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristie.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristie.com now and submit your question. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today.